Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode of Radio Free Mormon Halloween Special. As I record these words, I sit in a darkened studio, the only light being one flickering candle that sits before me, casting a ghostly light on the walls and ceiling. Halloween is my favorite time of year, and has been since I was a boy. I began anticipating Halloween as early as August, before I had even returned to school. But by the time the calendar turned over to October 1st, and I knew that at the end of that month loomed Halloween, the excitement began in earnest. For me, Halloween wasn't about dressing up and getting candy. It was about the spirit of the season. And so, in the spirit of the season, I want to give you, my listeners, this very special Halloween episode. When I joined the LDS Church in June of 1978, I was 18 years old. And over the next year and a half, before I left on my mission in November of 1979 to Japan, the heavens were open around me, and I had many significant spiritual experiences. Most of these were very positive spiritual experiences, but interspersed with these were a number of very negative spiritual experiences. Experiences that were not illuminating and edifying, but consternating and terrifying. I have long wanted to tell you about some of these spiritual experiences, and it being Halloween time, I want to share with you tonight three such experiences of the latter variety. The positive spiritual experiences I had will have to wait for another day, but I do plan on sharing those with you as well at some future time. But before I get to these three stories of the macabre, I want to first tell you a little bit about myself growing up and my exposure to the weird, the arcane, and even the occult. In most ways, I was a normal young boy growing up in the United States of America. I played baseball, rode a Schwinn bike, and played outdoors during the summer from dawn till dusk in my bare feet. But in addition to all of that, I developed an interest in the paranormal that may have been more than usual for boys my age. I am the youngest of three boys, and occasionally it seems that my parents needed a break from all three of us to spend some time together by themselves. On such occasions, they would drop us off at the local movie theater in Texas, and more often than not, we were dropped off at theaters that were showing horror movies. Now, this was back in the 1960s, and the horror movies that were popular back then were made in England by Hammer Studios. Studios, featuring such legendary actors as Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. These movies involved Frankenstein, The Mummy, and most of all, vampires. Or perhaps I should say, most scarily of all, vampires. Frankenstein was not so scary because he was a lumbering monstrosity. Any little boy of my age and agility felt quite confident that he could outrun Frankenstein in a fair race. And the same with The Mummy. Who couldn't outrun The Mummy? The only trick was not to get cornered and not to fall down while you were running like so many of the helpless and hapless female victims seemed to do in those movies. But vampires were much harder to run from because they could turn into a bat and fly after you. It's not so easy to outrun a bat. They were also very difficult to hide from because they could turn into mist 
and seep under a locked door, after which they would materialize and proceed to suck your blood. I remember that it was a point of honor and tradition among us three boys upon arriving at the movie house and buying at the front counter whatever candy or popcorn we could afford to traipse down the aisle of the movie theater and position ourselves squarely on the front row in the center. Now, if it had been up to me, I would have sat further back so as to have some rows of seats between me and the monsters on the screen. One can never be too careful. But as my big brother insisted on sitting in the front row, and I, not wanting to be called a baby, had to sit with him, completely exposed to the horrors of the Hammer studio. I remember specifically on one occasion being in the front row and watching a vampire movie where Dracula was played, no doubt, by Christopher Lee. The scene was a bedroom where the heroine was asleep on her bed, outside the French windows on the balcony, and behind the gauzy curtains that covered them, the shadow of a bat appeared, which then transformed into Dracula. As those French doors began to open into the room, I was overcome with such terror that I simply could not watch what was going to happen. There was nowhere to escape on the front row. And for some time after, my big brother kidded me mercilessly about throwing myself face down on the floor and burying my eyes in my hands. At the tender age of eight, my parents dropped us three boys off for another movie, and I can tell you that I am one of the people, still alive, who was able to watch The Night of the Living Dead on its first release in the movie theater. That movie, too, left quite an impression. Two other things I remember about going to the movies with my brothers back in the 1960s in Waco, Texas, had to do with the food you could get to eat while watching the movies. The first item were giant-sized dill pickles which floated in brine in a huge barrel in the lobby. Although perhaps somewhat unsanitary by today's standards, those were the best dill pickles I have ever eaten in my entire life. The second had to do with the popsicles on a stick that were a favorite among us three boys, especially since we were generally dropped off at the movies during the summer. It was extremely hot outside, as you can imagine, and the popsicles were a welcome relief from the heat. I remember the popsicles were kept in a deep freeze unit, and when the person behind the counter opened it to fetch one out, great white mists of cold rolled out from inside the refrigeration unit, testifying to the fact that the good people at the movie theater must have used liquid nitrogen or its equivalent to keep the popsicles good and cold. All I know is that on more than one occasion, upon getting such a popsicle, proceeding into the movie theater, sitting on the front row, taking the paper off the popsicle, and taking my first lick, as often as not, my tongue got stuck firmly to the surface of the popsicle, at which point I was put on the horns of a painful dilemma. I could either leave the popsicle there on my tongue, which was rapidly turning my tongue to ice, or I could forcibly yank the popsicle off my tongue, removing the majority of my taste buds in the process. I think it was my big brother who taught me the correct procedure in such situations, which was to avoid the very natural impulse to yank the popsicle off the tongue, and instead to enclose the popsicle with my entire mouth. If I did that and endured the extreme cold for a few seconds that seemed to drag on like hours, the warmth from the rest of my mouth would cause the popsicle to lose its tenacious hold on my tongue, and I could remove it with little additional harm. In 1969, we moved from Texas to Washington State when my dad took a job 
at Boeing, my dad being an aeronautical engineer by trade. During this time period in American history, it seemed that there was a great interest in the paranormal, an interest in the supernatural, which was reflected in the culture itself. There were TV shows dealing with the subject, such as The Sixth Sense with Gary Collins. This was also the time period when the amazing Kreskin had a regular TV show and even a children's game, which exposed young people such as myself to the basic elements of extrasensory perception. Even toy makers such as Mattel issued games dealing with, of all things, palmistry. That was the Mattel Mystique palmistry game issued in 1969. And through Mattel, I became familiar with the lifeline, the headline, the heartline, the mound of Venus, and the fact that the left hand tells one's past and the right hand tells one's future. Adding to my knowledge of palmistry, I also dabbled in numerology, astrology, the tarot, and even self-hypnosis. My big brother, who was five years older than I, had managed to get a book titled Self-Hypnosis. I have no idea where he got that book from, but it looked interesting to me, so I nabbed it when he wasn't looking, and I read it myself. I think it's probably fair to say I did not read it all the way through. I mean, I am only 11 or 12 years old at the time. But I did read the first chapter or two and got the basic idea down on the theory of how to hypnotize oneself. And for a brief period of time, during the 15-minute morning recesses at Scenic Hill Elementary School in Kent, Washington, I would go off to a private place, lie down, and practice hypnotizing myself. Now, I hasten to add that during the one-hour lunch recess, self-hypnosis had to give way to the more normal pastimes of kickball, tetherball, and foursquare. Back in those days, book clubs were all the rage. And by book clubs, I mean book publishers and distributors who would send by mail an offer that you could get four books of your choice for free in exchange for your written promise that you would buy at least one book a month at full price for a minimum of a year. These types of circulars were usually thrown out in the garbage as junk mail. But I remember getting my hands on one of these once, taking it to my room, looking through the long lists of possible books that I could get for free, and finding four in which I had a definite interest. One of those books had to do with numerology, another with demonology for crying out loud. Here I am 11 or 12 years old and getting a book on demonology. The third book, I believe, was called The Diary of a Witch. And the fourth book, I cannot remember now what it dealt with, but it was something along those same lines. Yes, numerology, demonology, and The Diary of a Witch. I remember being very excited upon receiving these books in the mail. I learned the basic principles of numerology, I read some of The Diary of a Witch, which was not that interesting to me, and in the book on demonology. I certainly did not read that entire book, but I did look through the section on spells to see what kind of things I could do by magical powers and the dark arts. I remember there being a spell about how to turn invisible. Well, this, of course, caught my attention, as it would, I think, probably any 12-year-old boy. I seem to recall the spell had something to do with a dead body and taking silver coins and putting them on the eyes of the dead body for a certain period of time when the moon was in a certain alignment, and then if all things were done correctly, at the end of this procedure, one could take one of the silver coins and put it in one's mouth, and by so doing, one would be rendered invisible. Well, taking such a coin and putting it in my mouth seemed gross in the first place. 
but obtaining a dead body for use in the spell was completely beyond my means at the time, so I had to reluctantly remain visible for the rest of my childhood. Now, if only my dad had been a mortician instead of an aeronautical engineer, I would have been in business. It was from the book Diary of a Witch that I gained my first exposure to Shakespeare. In the front of the book was written down the incantation from the three weird sisters in Macbeth. You know, the one that goes double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble and so forth. I was very much taken with this bit of poetry and I committed it to memory and thereby hangs a somewhat humorous tale. As I mentioned before, I was the youngest of three boys, and growing up the youngest of three boys, one has to learn to live by one's wits. I'm too small to be able to win arguments with my older brothers by sheer force, and therefore I have to rely on other means to win the day if the day is going to be won. This story does not have to do with my older brothers per se, but it does have to do with older boys in the neighborhood where my family had just moved. As I say, I was 10 or 11 years old and my family had recently moved to an apartment building in Kent, Washington. The name of the apartment building was called the Village Green. One day, late in the afternoon, I was outside playing by myself when a group of three older boys came by and started picking on me. I knew that fighting was out of the question, and so I fixed my gaze on the largest of the three boys with what I hoped was a suitably malevolent glare and began incanting, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, over and over again, thinking of it not so much as an incantation but as a curse. Well, the incantation had the desired effect and the boys all looked at me like I was out of my mind and went running off to do something else. I was quite pleased with myself and the power of the curse that I had learned through this incantation. It was either that night or the night after that my father took me out into the hallway outside our apartment after dinner because he said he had something he needed to talk with me about. This usually meant trouble for me when my dad had something he needed to talk with me about. So we went into the hallway and my dad began to tell me with as stern a voice as he could muster that he had been contacted by the mother of one of these boys and they were very concerned about my, about my incanting Shakespeare at them and that really I needed to not do that anymore because it was causing problems. Even now I can remember that it was difficult for my dad to keep a straight face as he was telling me this. But I assured him I would knock off the ritualistic incantations against neighborhood boys and that settled the matter. After that, while I was still 11, 12, or 13, I committed other pieces of poetry and doggerel to memory, one of which was in a book that had a collection of such poetry, and this piece was titled Sir Roderick's Song. It was only while preparing for this podcast that I went back to check out this song and found out that it is a piece of poetry set to music by none other than Gilbert and Sullivan. Here's how the poem went in the book from which I memorized it. When the night wind howls in the chimney cowls and the bat in the moonlight flies... When inky clouds like funeral shrouds sail over the midnight sky. When the footpads quail at the night bird's wail and black dogs bay at the moon. Then is the specter's holiday. Then is the ghost's high noon. Another poem along these lines that I committed to memory was The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. While visiting my Aunt Joyce at her house in Desert Hot Springs, California, over the summer, I had a lot of empty hours to fill, and one day I decided to fill it up by memorizing the entire poem, 
the raven. Yes, all 18 stanzas of it. Everyone's heard the opening lines. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. All that stuff. But it was the last stanza that I liked the most. The one that goes, But the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Okay, that's probably enough of that. I could go on like this all night, and I've probably gone on long enough as it is. I give you that trip down memory lane so perhaps you can better contextualize the events that happened to me after I joined the LDS Church when I was 18, and the events that happened to me even while I was studying and learning about the LDS Church before being baptized. Now, the stories I've been sharing with you happened when I was much younger, probably from the age of 13 on down. And even during this time, I was actually a very normal young boy, playing on the local peewee baseball team and developing other interests. I would say that from the age of 13 on, I pretty much put away palmistry, hung up numerology, and ceased practicing self-hypnosis. Although I will admit that the principles I learned from the self-hypnosis handbook could be used on other people in order to put them into a light trance if they were susceptible enough for the amusement and entertainment of others. I go through junior high school, I go through high school, and by the time I'm getting ready to graduate from high school, In 1978, the first incident I want to relate to you occurs. Now, I've mentioned to you before about my friend, Bruce. He was a Mormon. I first was introduced to him in ninth grade when my family moved once again to another town called Sumner, Washington. And I've mentioned before how Bruce, at pretty much every opportunity, tried to expose me to Mormonism and how I was extremely resistant to those exposures and how basically my response was to simply make fun of him and his religious beliefs and his belief in a prophet who walked and talked with God. I've also mentioned how every Friday night Bruce would have friends over to his house to play a card game called Pounce and to hang out and talk afterwards. Well by this time it was late May of 1978 and I had about as much intention of joining the LDS Church as I had for the prior four years or for my entire life up to that point. But this one evening, I go over to Bruce's house with the idea of just hanging out with him and having a good time. But when I came through the door and walked up the stairs into the living room, I see something going on that I was completely unprepared for. Bruce was seated in the living room on a couch. Next to him on the couch were two of our mutual friends. One of them was Jay Simmons and the other was Barbara Freeman. Bruce and I were in the same grade. We were seniors that year. Jay Simmons was a year older. Barbara Freeman was a year or two younger. And sitting opposite of Jay and Barbara on two chairs were a couple of Mormon missionaries. And they were sitting there in their suits, in their ties, and their white shirts. And they were talking to Jay and to Barbara. And they had their flip charts out. And what they were doing was teaching them one of the discussions. Yes, unbeknownst to me, Bruce had gotten Barbara and Jay to sit down and listen to the missionary discussions. Now, Jay would end up joining the church. Barbara would not, but they were both sitting there listening to the missionary discussions. And from my point of view, this was a big bother because 
Bruce is obviously committed to listening to these missionary discussions with Barbara and Jay, and he's not going to be able to hang out until after it's over, and so we're not going to have any fun until the missionaries are done. So I end up plopping myself down on the floor of the living room while the missionaries are continuing to give their lesson to Barbara and Jay, counting the minutes until they're done. But I couldn't help listening to what it was they were saying, and it certainly piqued my interest. I remember that periodically they would stop their lesson to ask questions to Barbara and Jay to find out what it was they thought about what they were saying. This was, of course, in the day when the missionary discussions were memorized and the questions themselves were scripted. I didn't know any of that at the time, but what I did know was that I listened to Jay and Barbara answer the questions, and I thought that I had answers that I wanted to give to those questions as well, but... This discussion was not directed at me. I'm just hanging out, lying on the floor, and so I kept my mouth shut. But I do remember being very interested by what the missionaries were saying and feeling a special spirit or feeling there in the room while they were teaching. Well, eventually, they got done with their lesson and left the house. Barbara ended up leaving, and Jay hung around. Now, Jay had a crush on Bruce's big sister, Roberta. And as far as I know, that was the end to getting him to take the missionary discussions in the first place. The old datum, dunkum, and dropum strategy. But even at this point in Jay's and Roberta's relationship, there was trouble in paradise. And Jay was definitely more enamored with Roberta than Roberta was with Jay. And so they were trying to hash this out in the living room of Bruce's house. And Bruce and I really did not want to hang around while they were doing it because it was getting awkward and uncomfortable. So what Bruce and I did was we went outside on the deck of his house and from there we grabbed a ladder and climbed up on the roof. Now, this was at nighttime. Bruce's house was out away from the city, and so there wasn't a whole lot of ambient light. It was a clear sky. The stars were out. It was a beautiful evening. There were also a number of very tall evergreen trees that grew up by the side of Bruce's house and extended from the ground two stories below, past the roof on which we were sitting, and up into the sky. And looking up at the stars, the sky was framed to some degree by the tops of these evergreen trees. Somehow or other, the conversation turned around to Mormonism, and Bruce started to tell me an amazing story involving the pre-mortal existence and the Grand Council in heaven. And as soon as I say those words to you, you know exactly what it was that he was telling me about. Only I had never heard anything like this before in my entire life. It was all completely new to me. I felt a very peaceful feeling in my heart as Bruce was telling me this story, a feeling that later I came to associate with the Spirit of God. Now, as I say, we were sitting on the roof of his two-story house. There were evergreen trees that came up right next to the roof and even had branches that overlapped the top of the roof near where we were sitting. And Bruce was interrupted in the telling of his story by a loud snapping sound coming directly from the tree right next to where we were sitting. It was like a branch being broken over somebody's knee. That's the kind of sound it was. And because the night was so still and the sound so unexpected, it sounded like a rifle shot. We were both startled by this loud snapping sound coming from so nearby. And we both jumped. And I'm sure that I swore. But immediately, the peaceful feelings that had been induced by Bruce telling the story were gone. And they were replaced by a feeling somewhat of fear and concern. So both Bruce and I agreed that it would be best if we got down off the roof and continued the discussion indoors. We laughed nervously as we were getting off the roof. And as we began thinking about the sound, we began making jokes about it because it really seemed strange that two stories up in a pine tree at 10 or 11 at night, 
the sound of a snapping branch should be heard. It was the kind of sound that you might hear from someone walking along the ground and stepping on a dry branch and it snapping underfoot. And yet this was not on the ground, it was 20 feet up in a tree. I remember that the jokes we made had to do with imagining a squirrel up in the tree watching us talking and taking a branch and breaking it over the squirrel's knee in order to scare us. But that was about as close as we could come to any kind of a rational explanation as to what caused this noise. The only thing I knew was that I had definitely heard it, Bruce had definitely heard it, that the feelings of peace and tranquility that I was feeling while Bruce was telling the story of the Grand Council in Heaven had been completely stopped by this noise and replaced with a feeling of dread. Dread is probably too strong a word, but definitely concern. Concern enough to cause both of us to get down off the roof and go back inside into the well-lit living room. By this time, fortunately, Jay and Roberta had taken their discussion elsewhere. It was only much later that I saw the film version of The First Vision and was surprised to find out that when Joseph Smith went to pray, he was interrupted in his prayer by the sound of a snapping branch and that in that film, the snapping branch was somehow associated with the presence of the adversary. And it was only much later after that that I found out that that particular detail, while not in the 1838 account of the first vision, was found in the 1835 account of the first vision. Well, it wasn't long after this that I expressed interest to Bruce in hearing the missionary discussions for myself, and he was very happy to arrange that. Those discussions took place at his house. He was present. The missionaries were also present. And I ended up being what missionaries call a golden contact. I took all six missionary discussions and was baptized in the space of less than two weeks. I was so interested in Mormonism and hearing more about it from the missionaries that I even had them out there on their P-Day to teach me the discussions. I remember one particular afternoon when I was at Bruce's house and the missionaries were teaching the discussions. They were teaching about the pre-mortal existence. In other words, they were teaching the plan of salvation and they taught the well-known concept, though new to me at the time, that there was a great war in heaven and that one-third of the host of heaven were cast out into the earth and that that host was Satan and all those who followed after him and that those were evil spirits who were on the earth and they were here to tempt us and try to keep us from following God's plan. Now the funny thing is that while they were teaching this part of the discussion, the electricity went off in Bruce's house. The lights in the living room, I remember there was a lamp next to the couch, it was on, there was a central light on the ceiling that was on and while they were teaching, the lights went out. Now, as I say, it was during the day, but it was an overcast day, so suddenly the room was infused with the gray light from outside. I had kind of a creepy feeling about this, but I didn't want to make too big a thing of it. I thought about looking over at Bruce, who was seated next to me on the couch, but I thought even that might be too dramatic. So I just sat there. The missionaries kept going with their spiel, by the way. They weren't phased at all. And after a few minutes, the lights came back on, and everything proceeded as normal. But after the discussion was over, I definitely had a question or two that I wanted to ask the missionaries, because their bringing up the subject of evil spirits had really piqued my interest, even though it had been many years since I had put these things to the side. And I asked them, are you saying that evil spirits really exist? And they told me, yes, they do. They're here on the earth and there's a whole lot of them. And then one of the missionaries told me a very special story. <laughs> what he told me was that he was at somebody else's house. He was sleeping downstairs in a guest bedroom that also had a kitchenette that adjoined it. And in the middle of the night, 
He was awakened by the sound of pots and pans banging together in the kitchenette. He got up quickly, went to the light switch, turned it on, expecting to see pots and pans everywhere having fallen out and perhaps seeing the cupboards having come loose from the walls and crashed down on the counter and spilling out pots and pans everywhere. That's what it sounded like to him must have happened. But when he turned the lights on, everything was in its place. The cupboards were still attached to the wall. There were no pots and pans everywhere, or anywhere for that matter. All the pots and pans were still where they belonged inside the cupboards. So he told me that story to underscore the fact that evil spirits are real. But he did tell me, he did tell me that if I'm ever bothered by evil spirits, all I have to do is pray to God in the name of Jesus Christ that the evil spirits be banished and they will have to go away because they have to yield before the name of Jesus. Well, I thought all that was very interesting, as you might imagine, because here are these two missionaries who I am looking to as the source of light and truth, and they are telling me that evil spirits are real. So after that discussion with the missionaries was over, I went about my day. Afternoon came and went, evening came and went, night came, and I ended up going to bed at my house. Now, I'm living with my family. My mom and my dad are there. My oldest brother has moved out of the house. He's gone to the Navy by now, but the other brother is still there. He's downstairs, and I'm there, and we live way out in the boonies. There's nobody around, really, to speak of. So I go to bed that night, and I cannot get to sleep. Now, I always had some trouble getting to sleep. It would usually take me a minimum of an hour after turning in before I could finally go to sleep. I had trouble turning my mind off, even on the best of days. But this night, my mind was consumed with the idea that evil spirits are real. And my mind began to run away with me. And I imagined evil spirits being present in the room and even under the bed. And here I recalled a picture from a book I had read Back in 1972, when I was 12 years old, this was a Jehovah's Witness book. It was called The Truth That Leads to Eternal Life. And this book also talked about the reality of evil spirits. And in the book was an illustration that had stuck in my mind ever since I saw it when I was 12 years old. And that illustration was of a man sitting up in bed and looking up into the darkened corner of his room. And looking back at him from the darkened corner were two glowing, menacing eyes. Well, I kept thinking that there might be two glowing, menacing eyes looking at me from the corner of my room. So I would gather up all my courage and I would look up into the corner of my room and guess what? There were no menacing eyes there. So I would close my eyes, put my head back on the pillow, but then I would think, what if the eyes are there now? So I would once again screw up my courage, look at the corner of my room again, and once again, no eyes. And then I would repeat the process over and over and over again. This was becoming ridiculous. I was actually to the point of hiding under my covers and thinking to myself, what are you doing? You're 18 years old. You're a senior in high school. You're about to graduate for crying out loud. And here you are hiding under your covers like a little boy. Well, this had been going on for a couple of hours now and I had to go to the bathroom. The problem was I was scared to go to the bathroom because in order to get to the bathroom, I had to swing my legs out of the bed and put my feet on the floor. And I was scared at this point that hands would reach out from under my bed and grab my ankles and pull me under. This all sounds absolutely ridiculous relating it to you. And I felt absolutely ridiculous about it at the time. But nevertheless, the fear was very real. So I went on for about another hour trying to convince myself that there was no problem, I could put my feet on the floor, there weren't gonna be any hands that were gonna grab me and pull me under the bed, and really I did need to go to the bathroom, and the alternative to going to the bathroom was becoming less and less appealing. So finally, I mustered all the courage I had, 
and I swung my legs out of the bed and I put my feet on the floor and I stood up and nothing happened. There were no hands grabbing my ankles. I turned on the light. I walked out my door, made a left, walked down the hallway, made another right and into the bathroom. By this point, everybody in my house is asleep. My mom and my dad are asleep. My brother is asleep. It is absolutely quiet. I close the door to the bathroom, I lock it, I go to the toilet, I'm standing there, I'm doing my business, and I'm thinking, what an idiot I am, and how was it that I could have let my imagination run away with me like that? As I was finishing up my business in the bathroom and shaking my head over what an idiot I was, I heard a sound come from the other side of the locked bathroom door, and that sound was three distinct scratches on the bathroom door. Scratch scratch, scratch. You can imagine how startled I was. So within a few seconds, I get done, I go to the bathroom door, I open it up, and there's nothing there. Now the reason I wasn't too scared at this point of the scratching sound is because there was another occupant of the house. There was me, my mom and my dad, my brother, and also a toy Pekingese dog. His name was Little Bit. He belonged to my mom. And even though I was very creeped out by the sound of three scratches at the other side of the bathroom door, I once again, as most people do under these circumstances, cast about for any rational explanation as to what caused the scratching sounds at the door. And of course, it must have been the toy Pekingese. Because what I thought was, maybe the scratching wasn't really on the bathroom door. Maybe it was on my parents' door. Maybe it was on the door to my parents' bedroom that was just down the hall from the bathroom. Because it was very common for the toy Pekingese to want to get into that door. And oftentimes the door was not closed all the way. It was left ajar. And the toy Pekingese would go up to the door and would scratch on it in order to get the door to open enough for him to walk in and lay down on the floor and go to sleep in my parents' bedroom. Well, that explanation seemed to fit the facts. So I opened the bathroom door, saw nothing there. I turned my head to the left to look down to my parents' bedroom door. But their door was closed. It wasn't open enough to let a dog in if that's indeed what the dog had been doing. At that point, I walked the other way and to the top of the staircase because I knew that there was a throw rug at the bottom of the staircase where the dog frequently liked to curl up and go to sleep. I looked over the banister down at the bottom of the steps and what to my wondering eyes should appear. But my mom's dog, the toy Pekingese, was in fact curled up and sound asleep at the bottom of the stairs. So it seemed very unlikely to me that the dog was the source of the scratching sound that I had heard when I was in the bathroom. And believe me, if I thought I was scared before, I was really scared now. But I remembered the words of Elder Timothy Shanson, the missionary, who told me earlier that day that if I should ever be troubled by evil spirits, what I needed to do was to pray to God in the name of Christ. And that's what I did. I went to my room, I left the light on, I immediately got down on my knees, and I prayed to God and cast out the evil spirits from my room and from the house, and I did it in the name of Jesus Christ. And after I did that, the bad feelings left me, and I was able to go to bed and go to sleep. So that concludes that particular story. By the way, if any of you out there are wondering if I'm making any of this up, I can guarantee you, I'm not. All of these events actually happened. I also had some incidents with what is commonly known as sleep 
paralysis. Now, sleep paralysis is the deal that you're lying in bed or some other place, but usually it's in bed. You're not asleep, but all of a sudden you are paralyzed and you cannot move. And what this is generally understood to be is a state between wakefulness and sleep. You're sort of half asleep, but you're half awake. You're asleep to the point that your body cannot be moved by your mind, but your mind is awake, your eyes are open, and you can actually see what's going on. And it's a very distressing type of situation to be in. Now, I had experienced sleep paralysis earlier in my life. I had not experienced it a lot, but there were a couple of occasions when I had experienced sleep paralysis. And this was when I was much younger. It was not when I was in bed. It was generally when I was in the family car and we were on some kind of long trip for a family vacation. I can remember two such incidents. One of them was when I must have been quite young because I was sitting in the front seat with my mom and my head was leaning back and on her shoulder and all of a sudden I realized that I could not move. My eyes could see, my mind was awake, but I could not move my body. And that was extremely upsetting, but eventually I was able to work my way out of it. Another time occurred when I was in the back seat, but I was lying down on the floorboard in order to get some sleep. This was during a night journey. Now, this is something I do not recommend to other people. You should have your seatbelts on at all time, but during these long trips, sometimes we would want to stretch out. I was small enough that I could lay crosswise in the car, down on the floorboard in the back seat. And I believe I had a similar experience in that situation too. But there were only two times, three times at the absolute most, when I experienced sleep paralysis when I was much younger. But after I joined the church, I began to experience it again and on a more regular basis. And it happened when I was lying down in bed. And the strange thing about it is that it was always preceded by a strange ringing in my ears. I would be lying in bed, there would be a ringing in my ears. Now it was a faint ringing in my ears, but it came to the point where I was able to recognize the fact that I was going to be having this sleep paralysis, I didn't know the term at the time, but that I was going to become frozen when I heard this ringing occur. And this became very, very concerning to me because I was usually tired, that's why I was in bed, and there were times when I wanted to give myself up to this sleep paralysis. It felt like a power that was behind me that was trying to draw the spirit out of me from behind and down. And I felt that this would be some kind of very bad thing that would happen if my spirit got pulled out of me and down to some kind of bad location. So I fought against it. There were times when I thought, well, wait a second. All I'm trying to do is go to sleep. And this is all that this feeling is. So why don't I just give myself up to it and go to sleep? But something else in my mind said, don't do that. You need to fight against it. So I always fought against it. I never gave into it. And this happened enough that I developed a strategy in order to get myself out of the sleep paralysis. And the strategy was this. I focused all the energy of my mind on my right forefinger to try and move it. And this took a great deal of mental effort. And eventually, I would finally be able to start moving that right finger. And I could move my right finger. And that was the only thing I could move in my entire body, other than my eyes. Because as I say, I could look around with my eyes. But that was the only part of my body I could move. But I would focus all my energy onto that right forefinger. And then with a great deal of effort, I could start moving it. And I could move my right forefinger. Then I would concentrate on the next finger. And finally, after a great deal of effort, I could move that. Then the finger after that then the other finger after that, then my right hand. And finally, after I'd gotten about that far, I could pull myself out of the sleep paralysis. And the imagery I had was, it was like a fly trying to pull itself off of fly paper. It was like my entire body was stuck 
on flypaper and I'm trying to slowly pull myself off of it. And once I got enough of my body moving or pulled off the flypaper, then I could just sort of tear with great effort the rest of my body off of the flypaper and I could wake myself up or I could get myself out of the sleep paralysis. Now, as I say, this was always preceded by a faint ringing in my ears. And on one occasion, on one occasion that had nothing to do with sleep paralysis, I had this ringing in my ears. I'm in my bedroom, it's night. This is during the year and a half between the time I'm baptized and the time I go on my mission. And I have this ringing in my ears. And this ringing starts getting louder and louder and louder. And I have never had this experience before or since. But finally, this ringing in my ears got so loud, it was like I was standing right beside the engine of a jet airplane on the runway as it was revving up to full power. I thought my head would burst open, the sound was so loud. And I remember sitting up in my bed and clasping my hands to my ears to try and shut out the sound. But the sound was not coming from outside. It was coming from inside. And so putting my hands over my ears did nothing to decrease the sound. I remembered to pray. I prayed to God in the name of the Savior that this sound would go away because I was sure it was being caused by something evil. And I remember that the sound began to fade. But then it ramped up immediately, even beyond what it had been before. It was even louder than it had been before. And I still had my hands over my ears, even though it wasn't doing anything. It was the natural response to that kind of a sound. And I thought my eyes were going to pop out of my head. The sound was so loud. But I continued to pray. I continued to pray. I continued to pray. And as I did so, very gradually, this sound slowly, slowly, slowly began to recede. Until finally, it went back. To nothingness. So that brings us to the last story that I'm going to tell you. I don't tell this story very often. In fact, pretty much not at all. And by the time I'm done with it, I think you'll understand why. I am coming back to this podcast now after spending a number of hours desperately searching for the written account of this final story I want to share with you. I was certain I had it somewhere on my computer, but I searched and I searched and I searched and I was absolutely unable to find it. Now, I am fully capable of telling the story without reading it from a written version. But because it is a story that I do not like telling, I feel more comfortable reading it. Fortunately, I went back into the archives and found a loose-leaf binder in which is contained a document which is titled, My Autobiography, It Is My Personal History which I compiled back in 1991, almost 30 years ago. This was back in the days when members of the church were encouraged by the leaders to write personal histories. And this part of my personal history is in turn based on a journal account, which I wrote near the time of 1979 when this incident occurred. And once again, that was back in the days when members of the church were encouraged to keep journals as well as write their own personal history. But this version of the event I wrote down in 1991. I found it in this loose-leaf binder and I was very glad to find it because I was seriously considering whether I wanted to share this story with you after all. And I had almost decided not to share it at all because I could not find the written version. Nevertheless, here it is. Now, as a brief side note, when I wrote this in 1991, I was very much a TBM. And so, the interpretation placed on these events are those of a TBM. The facts and details, however, are exactly as they occurred. And with that, I present the final story of tonight's Halloween special. I think it would be fair to say that my adventures with the dark side prior to my mission 
culminated with the events that took place on the night of June 24, 1979. That was the night when, in a waking dream, I came face to face with a minion of the adversary. Now, that's the interpretation I place on it. This is me breaking into my narrative, my own narrative, to say that's the interpretation I placed on it. I certainly came face to face with something. I'll let you decide what it was whether it was a minion of the adversary or something else entirely different. I also struggled for some time to try and describe what it was that happened and ultimately landed on the phrase of a waking dream, which I thought best described it. So once again, that's a bit conclusory, but I will go into the details now. But in order to properly tell this tale, we must first go back to a sunny spring day in 1975 when my parents took me to the Humane Society in Tacoma to pick out a dog of my own. I had never had a dog of my own before this. There was always a family dog or my mom's dog, but never a radio-free Mormon dog. This was the first time that was going to happen, and I was very excited about it. I chose a medium-sized Malamute-type dog with long hair that was colored blonde and black. Though he was of a sweet disposition, I named him Cerberus after the three-headed dog who stands guard at the gates of Hades in Greek mythology because I kind of like the name. I called him Serbi for short. He was much more of a Serbi than a Cerberus, if you know what I mean. Serbi was a wonderful companion to me as I went through my troubled high school years. Through thick and through thin, Serbi became my comfort, the one person I could count on to accept me, no matter how badly I felt other things were going or how badly I felt about myself. Our relationship came to an end on June 22, 1979. I was at the neighbor's house that afternoon. They lived one lot away from us and were members of the church, too. Their last name was Alf. As evening approached, I left from their front door in order to go home. As I emerged from their house, I heard the sound of screaming. Barely able to distinguish the screams as being those of a dog and not a human, I rushed out of the house to see what was going on. In the front yard of the lot located between my house and the Alf's was a grisly scene. So the Alf's lived on one lot. We lived on another lot. There was an intervening lot where there was a summer cabin. And generally, except in the summer, there was nobody there. At the time this occurred, there was nobody there. So for all intents and purposes, it was a vacant lot, although it had a summer cabin built on it. In the front yard of this lot, located between my house and the Alf's, was a grisly scene. About four or five dogs were sitting in a circle, gazing intently at what was transpiring inside the circle. What they were looking at was Serby, lying on his back with another large dog at his throat. It was Serby who was screaming. I rushed over to Serby's side. The other dogs calmly disassembled at my approach. As I began to inspect Serby, who was still lying on his back, the thought passed through my mind that this was just about exactly the same place in this middle lot where we had found the body of my big brother's cat some years before. The cat, whose name was Korak, had been hit by a car on the highway that ran in front of our house and the other lots. Korak had dragged himself some 100 feet to that very spot before his strength gave out and his life fled. When we found Korak, he was already dead, and there was a glazed look to his eyes. As I looked at Serbi lying there, that same glazed look was in his eyes. 
I was scared that he might be dead. I whispered encouragement to him and held him and let him know I was... I... I whispered encouragement to him and held him and let him know I was there. He blinked his eyes a few times and his eyes cleared. The glaze went away. I picked him up and took him to the house. We thought for a while that he would be all right, inasmuch as he was able to walk again and there were no obvious wounds that we could see. But it soon became apparent that something was wrong with Serby. We took him to the animal clinic that very evening, it being a Friday. The vet examined Serby and told us that his ribs had been crushed and his lung punctured, that he would have to operate immediately to reinflate the lung to try to save Serby's life. Serby died once on the operating table, but was later resuscitated. Then he was put on an intravenous device. My friend Bruce and I came down later to the vets and gave him a blessing. It didn't help. Serby died at 3.50 a.m. the next morning, on Saturday the 23rd of June. Now, the preface is complete and we are prepared to consider the events that transpired on the Sunday night of June 24, 1979. At approximately 9 o'clock that evening, I had just laid myself down on my bed, still greatly upset. Some of the summer evening's late afterglow came through my window. One moment I was there, lying on my bed in my bedroom, wide awake with my eyes open, not feeling in the least bit tired. The next moment I found myself standing in a field talking to a stranger. The field was furrowed as though for cultivation, but was void of any plant life except for short yellow grass laid flat against the earth. I could see a forest on the far side of the field from me, There was also one tree that stood by itself in the middle of the field, between myself and the forest. The entire scene was very hazy. It appeared by the westering light to be about the same time of day there in the field as it had been in my bedroom just prior to the transition. I cannot recall the appearance of the stranger who was present in the field with me. I only know he was there, and I remember him as being shadowy in nature. Perhaps I could not see him clearly because he was standing close to the tree that was located in the middle of the field, and the shadows of the tree shrouded his features. The only other things I noticed about his appearance were a glint that came from his mouth, or the area where his mouth should be, so I assumed he was smiling, and the fact that he had with him a large, handheld, tilling instrument of some sort. I could not see the instrument clearly, but it appeared to be a pick, or something like that. I was a little uneasy about my situation, but not alarmed. At the outset, I thought I was dreaming, but as the experience continued, I realized this was unlike any dream I had ever had before, and as I write this down twelve years after the fact, I have never had a similar dream since, either. And I can tell you that as I'm recording this, On October 30th, 2019, I still have never had a similar experience to this one that I had when I was 19. The stranger spoke first. He said to me, May I use your field again? I replied, almost as if it were another person. Why not? You used it four years ago tonight. Even as I spoke those words, I had no idea as to their meaning. 
But I did know, as sometimes one will in a dream, that the stranger was not going to till the ground with his instrument, but was going to bury something. Fear seized me. I turned away and began to run. My vision blurred, and I heard the sound of a mighty wind rushing at me from behind. The roaring wind curled up and over me like a giant wave, and then crashed down upon me, blowing me about like a dead leaf. At this point, the scene changed. I was once again back in my room, lying on my back, but now I was turned end for end with my head hanging off the foot of the bed. My eyes were still open, and I was looking down at the floor at the foot of my bed, though from this position I was looking at it upside down. The floor seemed further away than it is in actuality, and there were several objects sitting there in neat arrangements. Objects that I knew were not actually there in my room, or at least hadn't been in my room when I laid down originally. The only one of the objects that I can recall was a cup and a saucer, but the rest seemed to have been tableware as well, white tableware, laid out on the floor of my bedroom. All this time, the wind was still churning about me. Actually, I should say the sound of the wind was still churning about me, for I felt no actual breeze. I prayed in the name of the Savior to be delivered, for I realized by that time that it was no dream I was experiencing. I tried to move, but once again found that my body was paralyzed. All I could move were my eyes, so I couldn't even vocalize the prayer. I thought the prayer instead. Not feeling that I had the time to maneuver out of the paralysis in the slow finger-by-finger -finger method I have already described, I gave a mighty frantic wrench of my head, hurting my neck in the process so that I could sit up. As I sat up, two things happened simultaneously. First, as I overcame the paralysis and began to sit bolt upright in my bed, my vision blurred momentarily and when it focused again, the room was back as it had been originally, no tableware on the floor. Second, as I sat upright, I found that my body position had once again reversed itself so that I was sitting up as I had originally laid down, with my head on the pillow at the head of the bed as opposed to hanging off the foot of the bed. That was the end of what I call this waking dream. Later that evening, I told my mother what had happened. I also told her the strange conversation I had with a stranger under the tree, where he had asked, May I use your field again? And to which I responded, why not? You used it four years ago tonight. As I related this experience to her, I also thought about the coincidence of having found Serbi lying in the neighboring yard in the same place we had found Korak's body before. Do you remember when Korak died? I asked my mother, unable to recall it myself. After thinking a moment, she said, June of 1975. It had indeed been four years since the shadowy stranger had used that field. In point of fact, though, the exact dates were several days different. I found this out when I took a flashlight that same Sunday night and walked down the hillside to where we had buried Korak under a small pine tree and nailed a crudely made grave marker to the base of the tree. There it showed that Korak had died on June 28, 1975. Serbi was attacked in the field on June 22, 1979, and died early in the morning of June 23rd. I received my visitation 
on June 24th, or in other words, I experienced the waking dream on June 24th, no matter how you cut it. The dates were not exactly the same, though they were within a week of being four years apart. It was close enough to four years to give me pause. As I continued to reflect on this waking dream, I realized that the scenario therein may have been a symbolic representation of the neighbor's yard where Serbi was attacked and Korak died. The yard is similar to the scenario in the vision in that there is a collection of trees at one end of the yard and one tree standing by itself in the middle, apart from the rest. My personal beliefs regarding this unusual vision is that the adversary was somehow responsible for the death of Serbi, or if not, nevertheless wanted to pay me a visit that night in order to gloat about it. So that is the end of that story, and that is the end of all the stories that I'm going to tell you tonight in a special Halloween episode. I think you can see from this last story why it is that I do not tell this story very frequently. And in fact, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I have told this story in the last 40 years. And you know the funny thing? I find that as I read this story for the first time in many, many, many years, I find that I still miss my dog very much. This episode is for you, Serby. Thanks for being such a good friend. I'll never forget you. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.